This is uh, Jim Fetzer, the conspiracy guy. The news, of course, is completely dominated by Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein recommended Comey's removal. Uh, the timing appears to me to have been a function of having the personnel in place in order to affect the dismissal, uh, and it's uh, unfortunate that it comes when Congress is conducting the Russian investigation, uh, particularly given there was no Russian interference in our election, given that we know how the DNC emails got to Julian Assange from Seth Rich to Craig Murray, uh, where both Craig Murray and Julian Assange have asserted they know the source of the leak and he wasn't Russian. Russia had nothing to do with it. We know, too, as I will reiterate, that Robbie Moak and John Podesta invented the Russian hacking meme within 24 hours of Hillary's concession speech. And when it's out there in the public and this book shattered by two investigative journalists who put their reputation on the line, uh, it's in, it, insulting to the American people to have the mainstream media ignoring this very significant revel, re, revelation. We've been chasing this wild goose from the beginning as a massive distraction from the incompetence, the, the pathetic and feeble character of her campaign. Uh, I find it embarrassing that the in an indictment of the mainstream media that they are so incompetent when this is out there in the public record for all to see, and yet I haven't heard a peep, not a single word about it yet on the mainstream or even the cable networks, which is shocking. Maybe it's there and I missed it, but it's the key to understand what's going on and the amount of propaganda that's being dished particularly by the Democrats in this situation, to cover their ass. It's embarrassing. So we have here the, the letter to Comey where the president said it's essential we find new leadership for the FBI that restores public trust and confidence in its vital law enforcement mission. Three senior FBI and Department of Justice officials told NBC News they had no warning or advanced knowledge of Comey's dismissal. Some of the officials that spoke with NBC know Comey personally. There was no doubt that the way it was done was inappropriate. Comey was in California giving a speech to recruit for new agents of the FBI. When the news came across the television in the background saying he'd been fired, he thought it was a joke initially. Then, of course, it turned out to be true. That was uh, virtually inexcusable in terms of, you know, diplomacy and propriety. Um, not, of course, a violation of, of, of law. It is disrespectful, so it verges on a form of in, immorality, but not a very serious one compared to other offenses like kidnapping, murder, robbery, rape. So here we have the New York Times. FBI Director James Comey fired by Trump. Washington President Trump on Tuesday fired the director of the FBI, James B. Comey, abruptly terminating the law enforcement official leading a wide-ranging criminal investigation into whether Mr. Trump's advisors colluded with the Russian government to steer the outcome of the 2016 election. The stunning development in Mr. Trump's presidency raised a specter of political interference by a sitting president into an existing in investigation by the nation's leading law enforcement agency had immediately ignited a Democratic calls for an independent prosecutor to lead the Russia inquiry. 
Well, they're showing total incompetence in dealing with it now because they're accepting phony stories uh, that were promoted by the FBI itself, by the NSA, and by uh, the CIA, uh, which were the only three, by the way, of the 17 intel agencies that took a stand on this. So we're getting many, many false reports again and again and again of all 17 agencies having arrived at that conclusion. Not only that, but it was only an opinion they were offering with a high degree of certainty. It wasn't a fact of the matter. And in fact, it, and since facts have to be true, it isn't even true. So it cannot be a fact, but that the whole thing was contrived. We'll get more on that now. Deputy Attorney General's memo spells out case against Comey. When President Trump fired James B. Comey as FBI director on Tuesday, the White House made public a memorandum from Rod J. Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, recommending the dismissal. The firing was highly fraught because the FBI's investigating contacts between members of the Trump campaign in Russia. Mr. Rosenstein, who served as United States Attorney in Maryland under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, has a reputation as a by-the-book, nonpartisan prosecutor. In his memo, Mr. Rosenstein focused on the continuing fallout of Mr. Comey's handling of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State. Now, before I turn to the critique of Comey's performance that's alleged to justify this firing, let me observe that the uh, Julian Assange has tweeted, FBI source says the FBI will now start leaking, leaking like Niagara, but please, FBI friends, full doxer, you know the press will spin it. I think that's probably right, and there's going to be a new avalanche, like a waterfall of leaks for Julian Assange, which has been the, the constant reliable source of revelations, the authenticity of which have never been challenged even once. Turning to uh, the... Rosenstein critique. Here are elements thereof. Uh, portrays Mr. Comey as a rare source of bipartisan agreement in opposition. Over the past year, the FBI's reputation and credibility have suffered substantial damage and it's affected the entire Department of Justice. I cannot defend the director's handling of the conclusion of the investigation of Secretary Clinton's emails and I do not understand his refusal to accept the nearly universal judgment that he was mistaken. Almost everyone agrees that the director made serious mistakes. It's one of the few issues that unites people of diverse perspectives. End quote. And yes, of course, that's correct. I mean, both, both Republicans and Democrats, for different reasons, believe he blundered. And we'll discuss some of the details and features thereof in relation to the two different occasions on which he spoke out, one on July 5th, the other on uh, October 28th. It criticizes uh, Mr. Comey for overstepping his role, uh, quoting, the director was wrong to usurp the Attorney General's authority on July 5th, 2016, and announce his conclusion that the case should be closed without prosecution. It's not the function of the director to make such an announcement. At most, the director should have said the FBI completed its investigation and presented its findings to federal prosecutors, end quote. Now, Loretta Lynch had had this meeting with Bill Clinton at an airport, which we all know is completely and utterly inappropriate. There's some who believe that it was because of that event that Comey felt obligated 
to come out with his statement the second time on October 28th, which is generally regarded by Democrats in particular as the decisive event. But the fact is that when Comey on the July 5th went through all of the findings of the FBI, it was an astounding list of dirty laundry that indicated that Hillary Clinton had violated all kinds of protocols with regard to the proper handling of classified emails. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh, one offense under the law after another, and yet he concluded that, in his opinion, no serious prosecutor would pursue the case which many of us found perplexing, I certainly think that he grossly mishandled that case. And of course, you know, it works both ways. I mean, since he was dismissing after giving the laundry list, Republicans, especially Donald Trump, had right to be offended. And because he was uh, giving the laundry list, Democrats weren't happy by the laundry list, but were overjoyed that he had uh, dismissed it which, of course, meant the event of the 28th October came at them, you know, out of the blue. Here's further Rosenstein. Compounding the error, the director ignored another longstanding principle. We do not hold press conferences to release derogatory information about the subject of a declined criminal investigation. The director laid out his version of the facts for the news media as if it were a closing argument, but without a trial. It's a textbook example of what federal prosecutors and agents are taught not to do. Well, I tend to agree with that, except that Loretta Lynch had compromised herself and left uh, Comey hanging out <coughs> where he had to handle it himself, or so felt he did, which could, of course, be faulted as another misjudgment on his part. <coughs> It portrays Mr. Comey's late October letter as a mistake, quoting, continuing his letter, concerning his letter to Congress on October 28, 2016, the director cast his decision as a choice between whether he would speak about the decision to investigate the newly discovered email messages or conceal it, conceals a loaded term that misstates the issue. When federal agents and prosecutors quietly open a criminal investigation, we are not concealing anything. We are simply following the longstanding policy that we refrain from publicizing non-public information in that context, silence is not concealment. But the fact is, this had to do with the response to the 650,000 emails found on Anthony Weiner's server. And I don't believe the director had any serious choice here about uh, stating a reopening of the case, whether he could have done so in a more concise fashion. He was actually pretty concise. Or not is another matter, but I think there really wasn't a, an option there. Uh, he defended his decision uh, at the hearing last week, of course, about the newly discovered emails, which, according to the Times, turned out to be immaterial. But that's hardly the case. They're hardly immaterial. The NYPD was outraged. We had plenty of leaks coming from the NYPD that Hillary Clinton was not going to be able to evade this having to do with multiple crimes, pay-to-play, Clinton Foundation abuses, uh, sex involvement with children, the whole Pizzagate scandal. I mean, members of the NYPD were outraged and saying if the FBI doesn't do something about it, they are going to. And uh, I believe that, in fact, we have yet to see more developments here. Uh, it's going to happen. It frames dissatisfaction with Comey in bipartisan terms. 
This is uh, Rosenstein. My perspective on these issues is shared by former attorneys general and deputy attorneys general from different eras in both political parties. He emphasizes his recommendation isn't driven by partisan considerations, but by his uh, 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 Comey's break from Justice Department traditions and procedures. And he cites others who have publicly criticized Comey's handling of the email investigation, including former Attorney General Eric Holder uh, of the Obama administration and Jamie Gorlick, Deputy Attorney General during uh, Bill Clinton. It says Comey's exit is necessary if the FBI is to heal, quote, the way the director handled the conclusion of the email investigation was wrong. As a result, the FBI is unlikely to regain public and congressional trust until it has a director who understands the gravity of the mistakes and pledges never to repeat them. Having refused to admit his errors, the director cannot be expected to implement the necessary corrective actions. And I think that's all quite reasonable. I do believe that the timing is unfortunate and that the Democrats deliberately stalling of the confirmation of Sessions as Attorney General was a major contributor. Uh, 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 Rothstein, uh, his, uh, Rothenstein's tenure in the department or elevation to this position is of recent vintage. I believe that Donald had a long-standing desire to get uh, Comey out, and that it simply awaited putting the right pieces in place in terms of the officials who could execute it to come take place. But that it's occurring now is, I think, unquestionably going to fan these partisan flames from the Democrats. He's uh, going to be accused of subverting the rule of law, being arbitrary, high-handed. There will be comparisons with Watergate, <clears throat> even though the situation there appears to be, to me, to be substantially different. In other words, yes, there was a firing of uh, high officials, in that case Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, and uh, <clears throat> Elliot Richards, who was the uh, attorney general, and uh, indeed the, an assistant attorney general as well. So that, that was a massive, uh, you know, that's why they call that the, the, you know, the Watergate massacre. What the Donald has done is to take out a, a, an FBI director who uh, I think justifiably is being held responsible for serious mistakes and that it's really not uh, e com uh, comparable in the following sense. Uh, analogies are faulty when there are either more differences and similarities or few but significant differences or when they're taken to be conclusive. In this instance, I regard there as being few but significant differences that make them not comparable, but that doesn't mean that the political spin isn't going to be used against the Donald, which is obviously taking place already. Interestingly, in Paris, we had a parallel to what happened here because Le Pen was an insurgent candidate who represented uh, uh, very unconventional views, wanting to get France out of uh, the European Union. She was very much cast in the mold of Donald Trump. There was an apparent sur surge of interest for support for Le Pen when many of the other candidates dropped out. Nevertheless, we had the outcome of Emmanuel Macron winning the French presidential election under dubious circumstances, as I shall explain, uh, defeating white-wing candidate Marie Le Pen and is securing 66.6% .6 of the votes. That's right. This is stunning. 
wasn't the original number. It was something like 58.7, but they bring it in at 66.6, which, of course, is a number widely associated with uh, Satanism and uh, various kinds of abuse and so forth. Marie Le Pen, the French election was rigged. It's not some grand conspiracy, but it's grand theft. All the same, Le Pen voters lost their ballots or rights by the millions on Sunday in France. If a ballot is damaged, it cannot be cast. So the political establishment, desperate to prevent Le Pen from taking office, arranged for the destruction of millions of Le Pen ballots. Up to one-third of all ballots sent out to voters, an estimated 60% of Le Pen ballots were destroyed at the time of mailing. Only Le Pen ballots arrived destroyed. There's not one report of a single ballot for Macron arriving destroyed. And I'm looking at photographs of, of five Le Pen ballots that had tears on them. So they were actually guaranteeing she couldn't win. Not only that, but it turns out uh, in the weeks leading up to the election, reports began pouring in that an enormous number of ballots for Le Pen were destroyed at the time of mailing. They were torn badly, rendering them void before they were mailed out. The randomness of the tears proves they were torn by hand with intent, a major coordinated effort orchestrated by the establishment. I have no doubt. The Le Pen campaign complained to the election watchdog claiming ballots had been systematically torn up, but the watchdog merely gave a Gallic shrug and banned the media from reporting on it. But it gets even worse. Voters in districts which heavily favored Macron also received multiple ballots, enabling them to vote twice. The French Election Commission even confirmed that multiple votes would count and wouldn't investigate until after the election. The French election was, by this method, stolen. Macron is not the legitimate president of France. I agree with that completely. Stunningly, nearly one-third of French citizens who voted Sunday did not cast a valid ballot for Macron or Le Pen. There are always a number of blank or spoiled protest votes, but the number here was quadruple the usual number. Uh, I think there's really not any doubt about what's going on here. In addition, we have uh, the, the, the alleged Russian hacking immediately before the, the long weekend when the mainstream isn't allowed to report, uh, where a, a cybersecurity expert claimed that the Macron party hacker left digital fingerprints pointing back to Russian involvement. I mean, this is just stunningly, you know, shocking. They, they play the same games over and over and over again. Uh, French election, this is from the Telegraph, are Russian hackers to blame for Emmanuel Macron's leaked emails and could they target the UK election? A report from Russia today uh, uh, you, here's another report. Now, this is supposed to reinforce the idea that Russia hacked the U.S. election because they hacked the French election. U.S. watched Russia hack French systems during election. Washington, AP, the United States watched Russia hack France's computer networks during the election and tipped off French officials before it became public, a U.S. cyber official told the Senate on Tuesday. Notice, by the way, the only way they could observe it is if they had access to the French political system and therefore could have hacked it themselves. And we already know the CIA has the ability to leave the fingerprints of Russia. France's election campaign commission said Saturday a significant amount of data and some information that was likely fake was leaked on social networks following a hacking attack on centrist Emmanuel Macron's successful presidential campaign. France's government cybersecurity agency is investigator 
what the government official described as a very serious breach. Notice how they're taking for granted it was a legitimate campaign when we already know it was not. The leak came 36 hours before the nation voted Sunday in a crucial presidential runoff. Uh, I mean, it's embarrassingly bad that these things are going on. It just shows a duplicity of the, of the you know, intelligence agencies of the United States. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's god-awful, but the CIA has made it a practice, and I'll return to a very fascinating article published by Roger Stone about the CIA's legacy of lies, which include coups that have taken place in over 80 countries, the first of which was, of course, in Iran in 1953. So for the CIA to meddle in France's election is trivial, obvious. Given the signs here, I frankly have no doubt about it. Now get this, in furtherance of the allegation of Russian meddling, UK was given details of alleged contacts between Trump campaign in Moscow. In December, the UK government was given reports by former MI6 officer Christopher Steele on possible collusion between the Trump camp and the Kremlin. May I observe that this guy Christopher Steele was one who is supposed to have put together the dossier. It was not, here it says, it was not previously known that UK intelligence services had also received the dossier, but Steele confirmed in court filings earlier this month that he handed a memorandum compiled in December to a senior UK government national security official acting in his official capacity on a confidential basis in hard copy form. Well, when Chuck Shermer said the intel agencies have six ways from Sunday to come at you, this is another indication. Steele was involved in this phony trumped-up Russian dossier uh, uh, where allegedly the Donald had hired prostitutes to pee on a bed that Obama had slept in. It was nonsense on its face. That anyone should have taken it seriously is, is beyond belief, but they did. And, you know, here's further trying to affirm that this was a legitimate issue when it was clearly a fabrication. Russia had nothing to do with it. The dossier was made up. Russia couldn't have even had access to the computers, the voting machines, because they weren't connected to the Internet. They were rigged, as I discovered in an interview I did on The Raw Deal, rentsradio.com, on 1 December of last year with Richard Charnin, who's a, an expert on the theft of elections using uh, electronic voting machines, on which he's published two books and another about the theft, the sabotage of Bernie Sanders' campaign by the DNC, which I regard as highly ironic, ironic because it is my opinion that Bernie would have run a far more competitive race against Donald Trump and might very well have won certainly because of my affinity for the Democrats' more liberal social policies, given that Bernie overlapped with Donald in regard to foreign policy, I would have found him an even more attractive candidate, though under the circumstances, I could not possibly have voted for Hillary Clinton. Now we have Sally Yates, who of course has undermined, uh, uh, not supported the Donald's efforts to ban immigrants into the United States, uh, claiming that she had warned Trump team that Michael Flynn could be blackmailed by Russia. Uh, the question is, you know, how that was supposed to have taken place. Uh, we know, in fact, that uh, while Michael Flynn had some contacts with the Russian ambassador, for example, frankly, uh, if you were an incoming administration and you had a new national security advisor, 
were he not in contact with high Russian officials, you might have wanted to fire him because he should have been doing that. Oh, I can't see anything improper. It's like Jeff Sessions having had a conversation with the Russian ambassador in his own Senate office. That was arranged by the Obama Department of State, just to show you how much the American people are being bamboozled by all of this complete rubbish and nonsense about Russian intervention. And here I repeat about the new book. The story's getting out, reveals Clinton, Hillary Clinton hatched the Russia hysteria to cover up for her losing. New insider book reveals Hillary Clinton made up Russia's story to cover up lazy, pathetic election loss uh, from, from shattered... Uh, the authors detail how Clinton went out of her way to pass blame for a stunning loss on Comey in Russia. She wanted to make sure all these narratives got spun the right way. A longtime Clinton confidant is quoted as saying, The book highlights how Clinton's Russia blame game was a plan hatched by senior campaign staffers John Podesta and Robbie Mook less than 24 hours after she conceded, quote, That strategy had been set within 24 hours of her concession speech. Mook and Podesta assembled her communications team at the Brooklyn headquarters to engineer the case that the election was entirely on the up and up. For a couple of hours, with Shake Shack containers littering the room, they went over the script they would pitch to the press and the public. Already, Russian hacking was a centerpiece of the argument. I mean, it's out there. It's in the public place. Here we have a report about Obama seeking NSA intel on thousands of Americans during the Trump campaign during 2016, about which I have no serious doubt. The Obama administration sought unredacted intel on thousands of Americans during the 2016 election, including those in President Trump's campaign and tradition, transition team, according to a new report, quote, during his final year in office, President Obama's team significantly expanded efforts to search national security agency intercepts for information about Americans distributing thousands of intelligence reports across government with the unredacted names of U.S. residents during the midst of a divisive 2016 presidential election reported circa on Thursday. The data made available this week by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence provides the clearest evidence to date of how information accidentally collected by the NSA overseas about Americans was subsequently searched and disseminated after President Obama loosened privacy protections to make such sharing earlier in 2011 in the name of national security, a court affirmed his order. The NSA is currently prohibited from spying directly on U.S. citizens, however, it's reported in all Government officials conducted 30,355 searches in 2016 seeking information about Americans in NSA intercept metadata, which includes telephone numbers and email addresses. The activity increased by 27.5% over the prior year, according to the report, and more than tripled the 9,500 such searches that occurred in 2013, the first year such data was kept. We also have a move now reported that the, 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 there's a leak of a technical paper in the UK prepared by the UK government contained proposals that endorse the live surveillance of British web users' online communications. Civil Liberties Organization, the Open Rights Group, received the document on May 4th and decided to publish the draft, which states that telecommunications company and internet service providers would need to provide data in near real time within one working day. 
The paper, first reported by The Register, also states that technology companies would be required to remove encryption from private communications and provide the raw data in an intelligible form without electronic pr protection. The title of the article, Real-Time Surveillance and Breakable Encryption Proposed in UK Government Technical Papers, and you can anticipate it's going to happen here in the USA as well. By the way, let me add, the Wisconsin State Journal has now published uh, an article about the impact of voter ID laws that were implemented here for the first time in this past election, which proved to be insurmountable for many in Wisconsin. Uh, here's a photograph of Carrie uh, Amplifinger, Associated Press. In this Monday, April 24, 2017 photo, Gladys Harris stands in her doorway in Milwaukee. She was unable to vote in the November presidential election because she had lost her driver's license a few days before and thought one of the many other cards she had with her would work. She was given a provisional ballot but was unable to return with a proper ID in time. It was a first presidential election to be held under a new state law requiring a driver's license, state ID, passport, military ID, naturalization papers, or tribal ID to vote. Get this. By one estimate, 300,000 eligible voters in the state lack valid photo IDs heading into the election. It's unknown how many people did not vote because they didn't have proper identification. But it's not hard to find the Navy veteran whose out-of-state driver's license did not suffice, or the dying woman whose license had expired, or the recent graduate whose student ID was deficient, or Harris, who at 66 made her way to her polling place despite chronic lung disease and a torn ligament in her knee. She had lost her driver's license just before the election day. Aware of the new law, she brought her Social Security and Medicare cards as well as County-issued bus pass and displayed her photo. Not good enough. She was turned away. In the end, Wisconsin's 10 Electoral College votes went to Republican Donald Trump, who defeated Democrat Hillary Clinton by roughly 22,000 votes. But the battle over voter ID laws continues. I'll be right back. This is the conspiracy guy. Mike Palachek, who reminds me of Will Rogers or Garrison Keillor, thinks that Kevin Barrett and I are doing the right thing by opposing creeping fascism in the USA. He put together a book about us, comparing us to the White Rose Group in Germany, who opposed the emergence of the Third Reich. Kevin was not renewed at UW-Madison because he presented both the official conspiracy theory of 9-11 and a more disturbing alternative. It was too much for Wisconsin politicians. Biographical, autobiographical, comments from friends and colleagues reflecting on our many books, articles, and radio shows dealing with the controversial issues of our time. For those who would appreciate an easy introduction to what the media calls conspiracy theory, check it out. White Rose Blooms in Wisconsin. Available at moonrockbooks.com. That's moonrockbooks.com. A series of short takes that I find highly disturbing Ivanka Trump to head review of U.S. participation in Paris Climate Change Agreement. To the best of my knowledge, Ivanka has no background in science, environmental, ecology, weather, whatever. That seems very strange to me. In addition, we have the report of Trump's son-in-law Kushner having undisclosed ties to Goldman Sachs and to Soros. This is another very disturbing development. We also have the sister of Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in pay-for-play influence peddling with the Chinese. 
what you voted for versus what you're getting, uh, Sessions and Trump versus Jared and Ivanka, a very disturbing. Jared Kushner's family criticized for touting cash for visa scheme in China. Here's another. Jared Kushner played key role in plan to renegotiate, not scrap NAFTA, reports say. This, to me, is profoundly disturbing, and it's complemented by a, a brilliant article in, in Strategic Culture, How Trump Mocks His Voters. This, to me, is decisive in the repudiation of Donald Trump, as I'm going to explain. It usually comes from his actions instead of from his words, but sometimes Trump mocks his voters verbally, too such as when the New York Daily News bannered on 9 December 2016, see it, Donald Trump admits he doesn't care about locking up Hillary Clinton. Far more substantial than mere words to express his disdain have been his other reversals, his actual real word policy reversals on his drain the swamp pledges, on his opposition to Hillary Clinton's foreign policy proposals, and even on his opposition to NAFTA and similar trade deals. For example, Candidate Trump constantly condemned those trade agreements for pitting high-paid U.S. workers against low-paid Mexican and other foreign ones and so driving U.S. jobs to those other countries, draining away the high-paid unionized U.S. manufacturing jobs. But the news media never asked him about the features of these treaties that have actually been the most damaging feature of all, which grants a one-way right for corporations to sue governments for raising environmental and other, such as product safety and workers' rights standards, and no reciprocal right for any signatory a national government to sue corporations, not even to sue those other, the race to the bottom national governments, especially the ones south of the U.S. border, that allow their corporations to murder labor union organizers and so to keep their workers low-paid, and thus more profitable and attractive to U.S. corporations than our U.S. workers. The uh, Obama administration supported that race to the bottom international trade status quo and sought to expand it via his proposed TPP, TTIP, and TISA trade tr treaties. And so Hillary Clinton had built her career supporting such treaties and would have been very vulnerable if he had challenged her from the left by candidate Trump about those features, but the media never asked about them, and only now is Trump actually committing himself, and his actual commitments turn out to be for the Obama-Clinton position, not against it, such as he had deceived his voters to expect. This finally came to be known from him when President Trump's man in charge of his policy on international trade deals sent a letter to the U.S. Senate on the new president's actual proposed changes to the NAFTA trade agreement. The feature of these trade deals that allows corporations to sue governments and so lock in the race to the bottom is called ISDS. It also removes these lawsuits from the laws and constitutions of any and all countries, including from the U.S. Constitution and legal system and courts, and places these issues on a supranational or international system of arbitration that's carried out by international corporate arbitrators, who can be, but aren't even required to be, lawyers. The reason lawyers aren't necessary, because no nation's laws or court precedents need be adhered to, and who serve on three-person international panels of arbitrators, which decide all cases and whose decisions are not subject to any legal or court appeals, but are final as soon as issued. So there's nothing like any nation's appeals court system, nor constitution, nor legal system, to evaluate or restrain any verdict from these panels.
Some of these arbitration verdicts have fined the taxpayers of some of their signatory nations tens of billions of dollars for increasing or even imposing any increase in or simply for applying an environmental or product safety standard in order to bring the given standard into accord with the most recent scientific findings about the environment or about the particular drug or other product. The country can either pay the fine or not increase or impose the standards. Those are the only two options for such a signatory country. Pay the fine or else abandon the nation's sovereignty over the matter. If the offensive regulation is imposed or has been imposed, the fine will be due and will be enforceable in courts and international financial institutions around the world, just as if the award had been granted by a sovereign nation's court. The fine is paid to the stockholders of the international corporation that brought the suit. So these fines are a burgeoning new profit center for international corporations extracting such fines from any country that places its national sovereignty as being more valuable to it than adherence to this ISDS system. The clearest indication of the administration's views on the ISDS is contained in a March 28, 2017 letter from the acting U.S. Trade Representative to the U.S. Senate Finance and Ways and Means Committee, which provides a draft negotiating proposal and objectives for updating NAFTA. Under the heading Investment or Chapter 11 of NAFTA, the object is to maintain and improve current ISDS procedures. This strongly suggests the Trump administration supports a continued use of ISDS procedures and, moreover, it will maintain prior U.S. policy. In other words, the core problem with NAFTA and with the other trade treaties of this type, with all ISDS treaties, including the treaties that Obama is trying to push through Congress but that Trump campaigned against, is not viewed by Trump as a bug, but will instead be a feature that can be part of the trade deals that Trump himself will be proposing to Congress. If Trump had any authentic objection to Obama's proposed treaties, TPP, TTIP, and TISA, the objections don't concern ISDS, don't concern their inclusion in the imposition of the imposition of international corporate sovereignty overriding America's national sovereignty, doesn't include any objection to the elimination of all democratic powers and processes and accountability from the regulation of what those corporations do or sell or how they sell it. Maybe the only problem in Trump's view was the name Obama instead of Trump, the wrong person's signature upon the giveaways to international investors. Trump wants them to owe him, not Obama. I have agonized over this aspect of the TPP, namely that it creates a board of international arbitrators who have the right to override the laws and statutes of any of the Pacific Rim nations thereby subsumed, up to and including the Constitution of the United States. So that by adhering, we open the door to globalization, sacrifice our sovereignty, and allow absurdities such as the following in Mexico. If a corporation wanted to implement, say, a mining proposal, but it violated the environmental safeguards and anti-pollution laws, then the corporation can sue Mexico for the amount of profit they would have made had they been able to go forward with the project which had been halted on environmental grounds. That's how bad it is. This is truly corporations ruling the world, and frankly, it's dumbfounding. And because of this, I hereby repudiate my passport for Donald Trump 
He's completely the opposite of the man I thought he was. The most important reasons for supporting him were to end the wars in the Middle East, to jettison the TPP, to enforce our borders. He's doing none of the above, in part, of course, because of liberal activist judges who are introducing irrelevant considerations when in evaluating his policy on immigration, namely statements he made on the campaign trail, where I expect that is going to be sorted out. But in the meanwhile, the real reason, the most important for supporting him, including gutting the TPP, jettisoning the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was signed, of course, by Bill Clinton, leads me to conclude that Donald Trump has undergone a transgenderfication and turned into Hillary Clinton because today his policies are identical with those that she would have imposed. We have a striking event that's not complete news to those of us who have followed the case, but the Afghanistan ex-president had dropped the bombshell that the U.S. created ISIS. Former president of Afghanistan, Harmad Khanzi, dropped a huge bombshell on Fox News this week claiming that the U.S. created ISIS. Karzi says he holds the U.S. directly responsible for the funding and orchestration of terrorist events by ISIS and claims that the Pentagon does this in order to further its Middle East agenda. Well, he's completely correct. I published before how we know ISIS was made in the USA back on January 20th of 2016, uh, uh, originally in Iran Review, I was subsequently uh, invited onto the left forum where I presented uh, a PowerPoint making the same points I made in the article uh, published in Iran Review. Uh, uh, it begins as follows. For those who may have missed the memo, 9-11 was brought to us by the CIA, the neocons in the Department of Defense, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens and the Mossad. Its objective was to transform U.S. foreign policy from one in which we, at least officially, never attacked any nation that had not attacked us first, to one in which we would become the greatest aggressor nation in the world. Wesley Clark, upon his return from serving as Supreme Commander Allied Forces Europe, the military head of NATO, learned the plan was to take out the governments of seven nations in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya and ending with Syria and Iran, which he shared with us during his speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in 2007, which may have been the most honorable act of his life. That it has not played out that way has not been from lack of trying. The brilliant intervention of Russia on behalf of Syria and its people and in defense of its malign president, Bashir al-Assad, a staunch ally, has thrown a monkey wrench into the master plan, which would enable Israel to become the greater Israel and fulfill its destiny by dominating the Middle East from the Tigris-Euphrates to the Nile. The massive control of the mainstream media in the United States, however, has obfuscated the grim reality of the situation, where the Obama administration was thwarted in its plan to lob cruise missiles into Syria on the fabricated context that Assad had gassed his own people, which Russia refuted with a 50-page dossier to the United Nations. This required the neocons who dominate his administration to regroup and contrive a more subtle rationale for attacking Syria. And of course, this was occasion when Russia negotiated with the United Nations for the removal of all chemical weapons from Syria, done under the supervision of a UN agency, complete, thorough, documented, so that when the, they contrived this fake gas attack, in Syria, more recently, they seem to have forgotten that Assad didn't have any chemical weapons. 
Surely the Donald and his advisors had to know, unless he was being massively misled, he launched the attack before there was any opportunity to verify exactly what had happened, but on its face it was an absurdity. And of course, as I've explained before, violated not only international law, but the UN Charter and the, the War Compacts Agreement with the United States. Well, it now turns out that Michael Flynn was actually fired. I've reported this before, but here we get confirmation from Flynn himself as the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, for opposing the creation of ISIS. Here, here, here's an uh, interview. The rise of the Islamic State was a willful decision of the Obama White House, former DIA chief. This was initially published on 6 August 2015, but Global Research republished it on May 9, 2017, very appropriately. In Al Jazeera's latest head-to-head -head episode, 2015, Former director to the Defense Intelligence Agency, Michael Flynn, confirms to Mendy Hassan that not only had he studied the DIA memo predicting the West backing of an Islamic State in Syria when it came across his desk in 2012, but even asserts that the White House's sponsoring of radical jihadists who would emerge as ISIS and Nusra against the Syrian regime was a willful decision. Amazingly, Flynn actually took issue with the way interviewer Mendy Hassan posed the question. Flynn seemed to want to make it clear that the policies that led to the rise of ISIS were not merely the result of ignorance or looking the other way, but the result of conscious decision-making. Hassan, you're basically saying that even in government at the time, you knew these groups were around, you saw this analysis, and you were arguing against it, but who wasn't listening? Flynn. I think the administration. Hassan. So the administration turned a blind eye to your analysis? Flynn. I don't know that they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision. I think it was a willful decision. Hassan. A willful decision to support an insurgency that had Salafis, Al-Qaeda, and the Muslim Brotherhood? Flynn. It was a willful decision to do what they're doing. Hassan himself expressed surprise at Flynn's frankness during this portion of the interview. While holding up a paper copy of the 2012 DIA report, declassified through FOIA, Hassan reads aloud key passages such as, There is the possibility of establishing a de declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria, and this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime. Rather than downplay the importance of the document in these startling passages, as did the State Department soon after its release, Flynn does the opposite. He confirms that while acting DIA chief, he paid very close attention to this report in particular and later adds that the intelligence was very clear. Lieutenant General Flynn, speaking safely from retirement, is the highest-ranking intelligence official to go on record saying the United States and other state sponsors of rebels in Syria knowingly gave political backing and ship weapons to al-Qaeda in order to put pressure on the Syrian regime, Hassan. In 2012, the U.S. was helping coordinate arms transfers to those same groups, Salafist Muslim Brotherhood al-Qaeda in Iraq. Why did you not stop that if you're worried about the rise of, quote, quote, Islamic extremists, Flint? I hate to say it's not my job, but that, my job was to ensure the accuracy of our intelligence that was being presented and it was as good as it could be. 
In other words, what Flynn is explaining is that the decision was made by those in the decision-making capacities, which would have included then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, then-President of the United States Barack Obama. And in fact, it's clear John Brennan, the head of the CIA who supported all of this nonsense, encouraged Obama to fire Flynn because he wasn't a team player. He wasn't on board. Larry Clayman, by the way, who founded uh, a Judicial Watch, obtained the documents from the Defense Intelligence Agency under Freedom of Information Act re requests that confirmed all of this. So shocking, yes, but true. And I think many liberals, if they only understood more clearly what the facts of the matter, would be decidedly less enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton, about John Brennan, and about Barack Obama. Here's an important report from Anonymous issuing frightening words. World War III warning, they are preparing for what comes next. The citizen will be the last to know. A new video released by the hacktivist group Anonymous via their official YouTube channel warms of a coming global war that will catch most of the world's citizens off guard. All the signs of a looming war on the Korean Peninsula are surfacing. We're watching as each country moves strategic pieces into place. But unlike past world wars, Although there will be ground troops, the battle is likely to be fierce, brutal, and quick. It will also be globally devastating on the environmental and economic levels. This is a real war with real global consequences, with three superpowers drawn into the mix. Other nations will be coerced into choosing side. The citizen will be the last to know. And this, by the way, is dated May 10th. Indeed, they continue, as previously noted, both China and Russia are mobilizing troops to the North Korean border, and the United States now has a naval strike group directly off the coast of the rogue state, with the North threatening to continue testing missiles and weapons of mass destruction, and the Trump administration officially stating that past policies of patient diplomacy no longer apply, and appears conf confrontation is imminent. But even more striking in some ways, are reports coming from Russia. Declaration of war. Russia MPs, members of parliament, blast U.S. plan to enforce North Korean sanctions on foreign territory. Get this. A senior Russian senator says the American bill allowing the U.S. Navy to enforce international sanctions on North Korea through the control of Russian ports is a violation of international law and is equal to a declaration of war. The realization of this U.S. bill includes a proposed force scenario in which the U.S. Navy would conduct compulsory inspection of all ships. Such a scenario is simply unthinkable because it means a declaration of war. R.I.A. Novosti quoted a upper house committee for international relations head Konstantin Kosashev as saying, the comment came shortly after the U.S. Congress approved the bill with additional sanctions against North Korea allowing for the possible establishment of U.S. control over seaports and sea routes in the Far East, including the Russian ports of Vanio, Nakhoda, and Vladivostok. I mean, this is incredibly, unbelievably stunning, as though the U.S. Navy could enforce what goes on in Russian ports. This is, and indeed, Paul Craig Roberts has picked up on what's so crucial about what's really going on with a recent blog entitled, What North Korean Crisis is Really About. The North Korean Crisis is a Washington orchestration. North Korea was last at war 1950 to 53. North Korea has not attacked or invaded anyone in 64 years. 
North Korea lacks the military strength to attack any country, such as South Korea and Japan, that is protected by the U.S. Moreover, China would not permit North Korea to start a war. So what is this demonization of North Korea by the prostitutes and Trump administration about? It's about the same thing that the demonization of Iran was about. The Iranian threat was an orchestration that was used as cover to put U.S. anti-ballistic missile bases on Russia's borders. An anti-ballistic missile is intended to intercept and destroy nuclear-armed ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and prevent them from reaching their targets. Washington claimed that the anti-ABM bases were not directed at Russia, but were for the protection of Europe against Iran's nuclear ICBMs. Uh, Americans, gullible Americans, might have believed this, but the Russians surely did not, as Iran has neither ICBMs nor nuclear weapons. The Russian government has made it clear that Russia understands the U.S. bases are directing at preventing a Russian retaliation against a Washington first strike. The Chinese government also is not stupid. The Chinese leadership understands that the reason for the North Korean crisis is to provide cover for Washington to put anti-ballistic missile sites near China's borders. In other words, Washington is creating a shield against nuclear retaliation from both Russia and China from a U.S. nuclear strike against both countries. And irony of ironies, what that means is, because they're setting up for a first strike, under the United Nations Charter, Russia and China have the right of a retaliatory strike, a preemptive retaliatory strike when so threatened. Because under the Charter, there are just two conditions under which one nation may attack another. One, when they confront an imminent threat, which you've just heard described so vividly by Paul Craig Roberts II, when they have the approval of the UN Security Council, which of course would not happen here, since China and Russia are both members. But beware of what's going on here. It's fascinating, too, a recent report, Pentagon in total fear after Russian superweapon paralyzes Alaska defenses. Pentagon reported in total fear after Russian superweapon paralyzes Alaska defenses online. It's a video report that the Russian bomber headed toward Alaska and when the Americans sought to set up fighter jets, they found all of their defenses had been paralyzed. All of them had been taken out of commission by some super electronic weapon. We had similar events in the Crimean Sea, the Black Sea, whatever, when a Russian bomber flew over an Aegis-class destroyer among our most sophisticated weapons, and they found all of their defensive systems were frozen into place. It led to a massive exodus from the Navy by officers and enlisted men who recognize that Russian technology is overwhelming superior to American. So we're in that kind of a situation now. It's incredible and destructive and very, very disturbing. Now, I want to close with a brilliant article by Roger Stone that you can find at stonecoldtruth.com entitled, The CIA's Legacy of Lies. Roger gives excellent reasons why the CIA has outlived its usefulness and actually become an, uh, a, a threat to the security and safety of the United States, contrary to its intended purpose. He talks about five different aspects, in particular Operation Paperclip, for example. In the wake of World War II, as the Office of Strategic Services was transformed into the CIA, more than 1,600 scientists, engineers, and technical experts 
including Werner von Braun and his rocket team, many of whom were not only members of the Nazi party, but among its leaders were quietly transferred from the Third Reich to the United States, where their antipathy for undemocratic procedures has exerted profound influence. Among them were SS intelligence officers Alfred Six and Emil Augsburg, who massacred Jews, Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Leon, Otto von Bolschwing, who worked with Eichmann and SS Colonel Otto Kerensky, who was a personal friend of Hitler's. There is nothing far-fetched about believing that their collective influence upon the government of the United States has been in the direction of making the nation more authoritarian and autocratic and willing to subvert governments at home and abroad. In addition, coups and assassination. Their contempt has been demonstrated by conducting coups in foreign nations, including usurping the right to self-determination, initiated by the 1953 coup in Iran, toppling its democratically elected government and imposing the Shah of Iran, whose brutal and tyrannical regime was not only overthrown by the popular uprising of 1979, during which Iranians regained control of their own country, which the CIA had stolen. Its activities include the 1953 Iran coup d'etat, the 1954 Guatemalan coup, 1961 assassination of Dag Hammarskjöld, 1961 Ecuadorian coup, 1961 assassination of Patrice Lumumba, 1963 Dominican Republic coup, 1963 the Diem brothers assassination, 1964 Brazilian coup, 1965 Indonesian coup, 1965 Greek coup, 1965 the murder of Che Guevara, 1968, Peruvian coup. 1973, Salvador Allende taken out. 1975, Australian coup. 1979, El Salvadorian coup. 1986, Iran-Contra scandal. 1989, Panamanian coup. 1991, the Gulf War. 1993, Haitian coup. More than 80 coups appear to have been carried out by the CIA, including at least one in the USA. Author Steve Kangas, A Timeline of CIA Atrocities, Global Research, 2016, has remarked that while the collapse of the Soviet uh, Union deprived the agency of its rationale of fighting communism, its budget was not reduced. And as Vladimir Putin has remarked, 95% of the terrorist acts in the world were conducted, are conducted by the CIA. It's long past time to question its continued existence. Operation Mockingbird. To counter the influence of communist propaganda, Frank Wiesner, director of the Office of Policy Coordination of the NSA, envisioned a program for recruiting American journalists to support the policies of the government by means of their media affiliations. After Alan Dulles recorded, recruited Cord Meyer to the CIA, he became the court man, point man for the agency. In 1975, William Colby, then its director, told Congress that the agency owned everyone of significance in the media at the time. An article by Carl Bernstein, the CIA and the media in 1977, confirmed his testimony and reported that agency officials had boasted that their greatest successes had been with the New York Times, Time Life Incorporated, and CBS, which gave it a lock on news at the time. The situation has become far worse in the decades since, where what is now known as fake news dominates the mainstream as opposed to the alternative media. The development of computers and internet communications has made it more difficult to keep the truth from the American public, where many of the most egregious outlets are resorting to fact-checkers to reinforce the views the agency wants to prevail. This is a new variation on the standard technique of one disinfo op supporting another, creating the impression they are independent sources when they are conspiring together. The obvious problem is 
Who is fact-checking the fact-checkers who are in on the scam? JFK. The agency's ingenuity was challenged by skeptics of the Warren Report 1964 raised questions about the backyard photographs, which had been faked, the role of the Secret Service setting him up for the hit, leaving two agents behind at Love Field, the vehicles in the wrong sequence, changing the route four days before the motorcade, and other blatant clues, forcibly stealing the body from Dallas to get it under military control, the impossibility of the lead shots, which not even the best sniper in the Marine Corps could replicate, and assorted other anomalies. So they sent out a memo on dealing with critics and proposed the phrase conspiracy theorist to implicitly shift the burden of proof as though unless they could account for every aspect of the crime, they did not deserve to be taken seriously, which continues to this day. Even though medical experts have shown that JFK was hit at least four times, once in the back from behind, once in the front from in, in the throat from in front, and twice in the head, once from behind and once from the right front, which could not have been done by a lone shooter, the CIA continues to play the mighty Wurlitzer, as Wiesner calls the mainstream media, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, and more, which does its best to drown out those who have done their homework and cannot be taken in. Today we know the body was altered, the x-rays were fixed, and the whole movies were revised to conceal the true causes of the death of our 35th president, especially the limo stop, to make sure he would be killed. The agency appears to fear that if the public understood the truth, its role in managing the flow of information to the people would be exposed, which he resists to this day. RFK. Not only was the agency profoundly involved in the assassination of JFK in collaboration with the Dallas Police and Sheriff's Department, but Bobby was taken out by four shots fired from behind as the acclaimed forensic pathologist Thomas Noguchi ascertained for the fatal shot was fired behind his right ear from a distance of an inch and a half, since Sirhan Sirhan, who just happened to be a Palestinian, never got closer than several feet of body and Bobby and fired all his shots from in front, it would not do to let his autopsy report stand uncontested. In spite of his standing, the coroner was fired for issuing a report that contradicted the LAPD's conclusions, and the public remains unaware to this day that three of the agency's key players George Joannidis, Gordon Campbell, and David Sanchez Morales were identified by several persons who knew them, including Bradley Ayers, who had served with them in the CIA, and Wayne Smith, a former ambassador with JFK's Latin American Task Force to the Department of State from 1957 to 62, at the Ambassador Hotel, where Bobby was taken out. I conclude by observing that on Memorial Day, uh, we will uh, observe the uh, the the. the anniversary, 100th anniversary of the birth of JFK, there will be an uh, online uh, pay-per-view program, including very notable speakers, including Roger Stone, John Barber, Edward Haslam, Larry Rivera, uh, 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 Fannin, and myself, who will be addressing how and why the Zapruder film had to be revised. Check it out at jfkbirthday.com and see if it's something you don't want to miss. Thank, this is the conspiracy guy. Thank you all.